Hey, Impact, welcome to the Wild Places series, the continuation of the series we've been in for Lent. I'm not sure where you are. I am sure that this is an incredibly unusual weekend for us as I am normally talking to you here together in this space. Uh, obviously, that is not the case. We've already given some updates. There's been some information. I'll talk just a little bit more about that here in a second. But I want you to know whether you are gathered at a coffee shop, whether you're gathered in the comfort of your home, whether you're by yourself with your earbuds in, uh, whether you are uh, with your family, uh, just kind of bundled up and hanging out together for this. Um, even though we are not meeting together, it is very evident in God's word to us when he describes the church that we are together in unity of spirit, that the Holy Spirit is in fact the agency of God that brings us together. And so no matter where we are, no matter what uh, the situation that you specifically are viewing through or the lens you're viewing through, we're together. And, um, and I need to make like that's true. And you need to make like that's true because it is true. And though we aren't gathered physically for this next uh, few weeks, it is so important that we stay connected, even using this incredible gift God has given us of medium to be able to connect with each other this way. And so just, just saying that, um, I'm gonna pray for us and then I've got a few things I wanna share and we're gonna dive right in to our, to our message. Let's, let's go ahead and pray together. God, uh, it, is, it is not normal. Matter of fact, it's weird to be in a space uh, like this without the people that I love so dearly and that love each other so dearly and that love you so dearly. But even though we're not together in this space, we still love each other so dearly. And God, we love you so dearly. And God, it, it must be stated just emphatically, we know your love for us has not changed, it is not altered, it does not run away and hide when things like viruses or things like fear or things like uh, global economic concerns or whatever the thing is that tries to crowd in, your love is the anchor that we are tethered to. And so this morning we submit ourselves just coming together under the umbrella of your love God, that you would gather us under, the, under your wings like a hen does her chicks and just hold us together as a people in our spirit, in our minds, and under the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we give you the next half hour or so uh, of our worship, our attention. Would you help us quiet our minds to hear from you? Would you help quiet my mind so that I can explain so that I can teach clearly, so that I can hear you and speak with clarity for others to hear. God, we love you, love you with our whole heart. There are a hundred billion reasons that we love you back, God. Pray these things in your name, Jesus' name, amen. Well, hey, 
little bit of housekeeping, a couple of things I wanna share before we jump into the passage of scripture today. First of all, we're in a Lenten series. That's not gonna change. There are a lot of things that have been imposed on us that have had to change over the course of just the last few days. Uh, case in point, not gathering today. But the things that we can keep moving forward in a normal way, we're going to. I believe that helps alleviate fear. I believe that that speaks to some of the panic in the pandemonium. And so we're gonna do that, um, including staying in the wild places, including working through each weekend, the same content that we were gonna do before um, the, this, this crisis kind of blew up in our faces. And so today, and you can do this even as I, as I share a few things, you can turn to um, Matthew chapter five. We are going to be in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount today. Uh, actually, the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the whole thing is so dense and so powerful and so extraordinary. There's no way that I would get anywhere near doing it justice. But we're gonna be in the first 10 verses of, uh, of his Sermon on the Mount, sort of the preamble. So go ahead and turn there. And I want you to be aware that as we work forward in the developing um, changes with this virus, as we try to act and react in a way that loves our community the way God has called his church to love the world, um, there are a few things that, that you can do and there are more things that we're discovering uh, moment by moment that the community needs and we're gonna react to those things. So just be aware this coming week, free and reduced lunch for some of our students needs distributed because the schools are mandated to be shut down and completely shut down. They're unable to get that food to some of the kids for breakfast and lunches that, they, that those kids need to survive. And so we have partnered with Flat River Outreach Ministry in the schools and we're going to be distributing, I think on Tuesday and on Friday, we're gonna be distributing uh, food for, for families in our community that desperately need that food. Um, so stay tuned for that. Our life groups, uh, we, we need you to be ready to serve. There are gonna be serving opportunities at Flat River Outreach Ministry to volunteer there because a lot of their workforce is in the most vulnerable population uh, of, of, um, that, that is affected by the virus. And so it's not safe for them to come into to, uh, contact with others. They're, they've got holes, volunteer holes that need filled that we'd love our life groups to know about. And those are just two things. There's gonna be more. So many ways, so many exciting opportunities to actually see Jesus and be Jesus so other people can see Jesus all around us. And we take that so seriously as a church. So please be ready um, as we move into this message. It's, it's literally this, this message Jesus gives that I'm gonna just try to give some commentary on is considered by so many the upside down um, gospel, <laughs> that, that the upside down kingdom. This is where Jesus comes into uh, even, even the 10 commandments that Moses gave and he, he sort of replicates the scenario as best he can in order to teach us something new, to teach us that, that, that the kingdom of God looks distinctly like the character of God and how we can be like that. And so this is really apropos um, at this particular time I think it, maybe it was ordained that God knew this was gonna be 
uh, the content for this weekend because we get to look at how the church is supposed to look different, how the church is supposed to act and react when panic hits, when fear assails, when we're not sure which way is up, when everything's topsy-turvy. Um, and that's just an extraordinary privilege that we get to join Jesus in. Uh, I, and I think the third way that I just want to encourage you, and this is a little bit less tangible, but individually, you probably have already experienced some level of fear that maybe turned to panic or, or paranoia around you. So I don't, I don't know if it's in the supermarket that you experienced it, all kinds of those stories this week, uh, or, or, or if it was just buying toilet paper, or if you're, tractor, you're a tractor supply company and somebody wants hand sanitizer and maybe tractor supply has it and they're going to get it and so they run and they start screaming at the, the, the cashier. These things have happened this last week. I, I'm asking, I'm calling on you as the church to look to our comforter, God, who comforts us in affliction so that we can comfort others in fear. That we, that our hearts would be so guarded by the peace of God that that, that we would be able to go out and be peace and calm amidst the pandemonium. I challenge you as a discipline of following Jesus this week to consistently, every time you feel fear, take it to the Lord. Every single time, pray about it. Sit with Jesus, listen to his calm. Though this is an unprecedented situation for us, you guys, it's not an unprecedented situation for God, not at all. In fact, he's been through plagues, he's been through pandemonium, he's been through insane chaos. He has seen, delivered, worked, and continued to work for the good of those who love him over and over and over throughout history because sin as an affliction and a blight has destroyed, eroded, and wrecked the very fabric of our systems. And so God comes into those with his plan, with his church, that's us, and we need to do something about it. So that's what we're gonna do today uh, and tomorrow and this week and next weekend. And um, join me now as we, as we move into the, uh, the preamble, the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, would you? Let's, uh, let's hit that together. It says this, it says, uh, in, in chapter five, verse one of Matthew, it says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the whole earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness, for they will inherit the kingdom of heaven. I want to start 
with just this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This, this word blessed, we're gonna see it, we, we heard it, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. It's critical that we know what this actually entails. And, and rather than just maybe our pale understanding of blessed, you need to grasp this. It means happiness. The literal translation is happiness, but it is a different kind of happiness. In the Greek, this is a happiness that is sustainable through life. It's a happiness that is deep satisfaction and fulfillment. This is the kind of happiness that is transformative of all of our life, that something has happened that doesn't give us fleeting pleasure or momentary um, excitement or all the things that are there today and gone tomorrow. This blessed is a lifelong before God, uh, a filling of him that's just extraordinary. And we get a chance, Jesus is pulling back that that veil to show us what that actually looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now I think immediately when we hear that, a lot of us just have this idea of financial poverty and it might start right out of the gate as confusing. Here's why this is critical. The first three of these statements are a direct teaching about what real salvation looks like, okay? Jesus is giving us the verdict in this beginning part of the Sermon on the Mount. He's giving us the verdict before he gives us the performance. We get to see God's grace to us in the form of salvation before we look at what it looks like to live out his salvation. And so right here, blessed are, blessed are those who are bankrupt in spirit. This is an, it's like an insolvency and it's a recognition that we have got to get to. For those of us, even those of us who are in the church, okay? Some of you who come every weekend or even part of a life group, maybe are serving on a ministry team. Some of you have done that year after year because you, want, you, you, you like belonging to something and that's good. Jesus is talking to churchgoers. These are the disciples or the, the people that are following, not just the 12, but others from that crowd. And as Jesus moves up the mountain to open his mouth and speak to them or preach to them, he is talking to those of us who've been in church for a very long time, but maybe have never realized the true level of our incompetence and our ability to do anything to bring about our own salvation. Jesus is starting from the place of impoverishment. You need to know if you're really going to follow me, if you're really going to experience my salvation that I came to give all my life to save you, you've got to reckon with, to deal with, the beggarly nature of your life. You're destitute. You can't do anything on your own merit or your own work or your own labor to reach and attain the righteousness, the holiness, the perfection of God. In, in fact, if you try to accomplish what Jesus is about to teach in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount without having a resurrected spirit that Jesus has breathed life into, you're not gonna be able to do it. In fact, you're just gonna fumble forward constantly. So there's this idea that we've got to reckon with right at the beginning. We are impoverished of spirit. 
We as a human being before a righteous God, before, before a holy God, before a perfect God, we bring nothing, absolutely nothing to that table. And I think there are many of us that need to hear this. I think you might be listening this morning and you might never actually have dealt with how empty, what, what level of begging you have. You, you, that's the state of your spirit before God. And this story actually came to me this week. Uh, the prodigal son is probably the best depiction of this, I think, in all the scripture. I'm gonna sum it up for you. You've probably heard of the prodigal son, but the story goes like this. There's this, there's this boy, a uh, young man, and he's just sick of his dad. He's sick of the family business. He, he says, I want my inheritance. I want it now. I'm leaving. I'm gonna go do what I want. I don't care about you anymore. You're as good as dead to me. Give me what is my inheritance. Give me my wealth. I'm leaving. So his dad uh, in a loving way actually does that, gives him his, his inheritance and he le- this kid leaves and he squanders it all in wretched living, black-hearted living, just, just all kinds of levels of selfishness and vileness. He spends it all, his inheritance is gone, he's in some far country and he has to go to work for a pig farmer. This Jewish kid has to work for a pig farmer and he's, his job is to feed the pigs their slop and he comes to this moment that all of us need to in realizing what what level he has fallen to and he looks at the pigs as he's fed them their slop and they're fighting over these scraps and he's hungry he's starving the pigs are actually more satisfied than him and he realizes he is lowlier than these pigs And it says in the story, he came to his senses. That is the goodness that that those of us who recognize how poor in spirit we are, the kingdom of God is right there for us. We can take hold of the kingdom of God. It's closer to us than any other time when we really realize, when we start to understand how impoverished we are, we come to our senses, bottom of the barrel, and we... When we see that, when we're at the end of our rope, that's when transformation can actually start happening. Salvation can actually start happening. So he moves on, he says this, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now again, there are these three steps of salvation. Mourning is a crucial part of our salvation. Once we realize how impoverished we are, once we realize how empty we are, now we actually have to reckon with this grief that should overwhelm us. In fact, 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10 says this, uh, as it is, this is Paul speaking, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting, for you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Listen to this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. We know this as people. We know this teaching of Jesus, this blessed are those who mourn. He's not saying happy are those who cry. That's not what he's saying. But he's saying inside where we have true sorrow about our sin, where we truly feel 
remorse for what we did, that is when things start to break loose and the spirit of God is able to start bringing about regeneration in us. As a father, I know this. Those of you who are parents, you know the moment where you walk into a situation where your son or your daughter has, has done something that requires discipline. And as you begin to work your way forward in good parenting, to, to stumble your way forward, to try to figure out how to guide them, you're evaluating their level of remorse, right? You're evaluating whether they really are, in fact, uh, sorry for what they did. I, I can tell the difference between when I come into a situation uh, with my kids and there's a, man, I just wish I hadn't gotten caught, you know? Just how stupid was it that I got caught doing this? Man, I really wish I hadn't gotten caught. Or the opposite reaction, which is, oh man, I'm sorry that I did that. Dad, I'm sorry I disrespected mom. I'm sorry I hurt my sibling. I'm sorry I was selfish. I'm sorry that I tried to deceive you. I, I see it. I recognize it. And, and I'm sorry for it. There is a brokenheartedness over what we have done to hurt the heart of God that is necessary for us to actually move into the next step, which is repentance. And that's blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. This is verse five, blessed are the meek. Now, I think a lot of you are probably like, how is that repentance? This is maybe the biggest stretch in the teaching between languages. So in the Greek, the meaning of meek is totally different. We hear meek, we think weak. That is not what this is talking about. In the Greek, meek is something, uh, it's, it's surrender. At the end of the day, it's surrender. It's not wussy. It's not the mealy mouth, mousy person that goes around and can never stand on their own two feet. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, if you look at the personality of Jesus, you look at his actions and his life, there was nothing our version of meek about him. In fact, he was the epitome of strength and truth and grace. And yet he says, blessed are the meek. Here's why he says that. Meekness is required for us to actually surrender and repent. In the steps of salvation, once we realize our level of poverty, once we realize our mourning and our sorrow, we should be led to a place where we see God in such a way that we wanna turn from the things that make us empty, the sin and the vileness in our life and turn from those things and turn to God. The, the actual meaning of meek is a bit bridled stallion. In the original language, a, a creature with incredible power, a war horse, a creature that can do astonishing things in battle, but that it is bridled and there's a bit in its mouth and that its ear is tuned 
to the voice of its master, that it's listening for the direction and the way of its, of its commander and its rider as opposed to just doing its own thing and, and, and being, um, being out of control. And I mean, I know this personally. I grew up with horses. I learned to ride nine or 10 years old. Um, we didn't have a saddle. All I had was a bridle. And we had this big um, barrel-chested Morgan Mayer. And she was pretty calm most of the time. But... Um, but I, I took her out one day and I, I ended up losing a lot of respect for her power because it just didn't seem like she was very powerful. And this one particular instance, I had her bridle, riding bareback. She's, she's a barrel, so it's hard to stay on there. And we were about a mile from the barns and I remember her spooking. A couple of pheasants flew up right next to her and she spun so fast, I, could, I was shocked. I, as a matter of fact, almost fell off when she spun. And then I'm in this desperate battle as a 10-year-old to try to get control of her. She got the bit in her teeth. And you want to talk about power out of control. She's gone for the barn. And I'm like trying to stay on. I fell off at about a quarter mile back. I swear we were doing 90 miles an hour. And my spine is uh, still to this day is proof because it hurt, I hurt for weeks, months, still have some pain from it because I, I, couldn't, I couldn't stay on. She was out of control. Meekness, meekness that Jesus is talking about is when we, with the incredible potential and power, with the incredible meaning and purpose that God has for our life, when we submit our way and our will and our stubbornness to him in repentance, in surrender, realizing how much we need him. There's a turning that takes place because we say, God, put the bit in my mouth. Use me to, do, to accomplish amazing things for your kingdom. And he as our master then guides us. His will becomes our will. His way becomes our way. Surrender is the key word. Just think, blessed are those who surrender. And you might need to do that today. You might know your level of impoverishment. You might, you might have begun to mourn even. But if you haven't surrendered, there is no way for you to empty yourself of the things that block God from your spirit and receive all that he plans to give you. We have to surrender. We have to be meek before our creator for salvation. And then he moves on. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. Now this one, this one gets uh, kind of distorted in our understanding right there at the word righteousness. You can actually take righteousness and you can put Jesus name there. Here's why we confuse this righteousness with right activity. But remember, we're in the upside down kingdom right now. Jesus is showing us that the verdict precedes the performance. This righteousness here is not right activity. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for right standing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for the right standing that Jesus gives us through his work, his life, his activity on the cross for us, his resurrected existence. That 
That is what we should hunger and thirst for. See, here's the deal. When our identity is covered by the righteousness Jesus gives us, then our activity will change. Hear me there. When our identity is Jesus' identity, our activity changes after that. So Jesus is pivoting in his statements. He's pivoting from the horizontal, or excuse me, the vertical relationship with God to the horizontal at this point. He's saying, he's saying blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for me all the time, when you're after me, when you do that, you will be satisfied. When you chase relationship with me, it changes everything else about your life. When you chase other things, you're gonna come up empty every time. There's not gonna be fulfillment. There's not gonna be satisfaction from those things. But when you chase life with me, change happens your activity can become uh, emblematic of who Jesus is in your life. I would say this, our satisfaction in life, our, our contentment in life is direct, it, it's in direct relationship to our activity, excuse me, our appetite for Jesus. And our activity then changes based on our satisfaction in relationship with Jesus, our actions and our life look differently, we can actually then move into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and we can become the personality, the character that Jesus wants to put on us with all that he intended for us. See, I think it's, it's, just, it's just a different kind of hunger and thirst than anything we're familiar with or the people Jesus is teaching would have been familiar with. For, for instance, for instance, if, if you remember just your last Thanksgiving, most of us, most of us, if you go back to last Thanksgiving, we've already, uh, we've already gone to seed. We show up in yoga pants, like even guys, we got our tights on because we know that the belt and just loosening the belt is not going to do it anymore. Our jeans aren't even stretchy enough anymore. We go into celebrating the pilgrims or whatever. Yeah, it's fine. That's what you think it is. And you, um, and you're, and you're eating and you're eating. Your appetite is, is primed to just consume and consume and consume. And by about 1.30 Thanksgiving day, you sit back and you're like, okay, I'm finally satisfied till Christmas, right? I don't need to eat another thing till Christmas. And by 3.30 at halftime of the Lions game, you are in the refrigerator and you're like, hey, anybody want a turkey sandwich? You, you're not satisfied. The hunger and thirst for those things is not satisfying you. This, this is evidence to us in so many different places of our life. How's, we buy, we buy, we buy. We buy the house, right? We buy the, the bigger house, the nicer house. I think some of us just need to know you're only one person. You can only be in one room at a time. Whether you're in a mobile home or you're in a mansion, you can only experience the joy of one room at a time. And yet for some of us, we buy more and we buy more and we buy more. But I, that probably could be a whole different message. My point is this, that when we hunger and thirst for the expression of the gospel in our life, Jesus, we become satisfied in a way that, that is supernatural in a way that represents heaven. We look differently. We look content. We're not chasing happiness anymore. We're, we're fulfilled because our hunger for Jesus is what is met 
and things begin to change. Blessed are the merciful. Again, he moves now out of that, that vertical relationship with God. He's moving now into what it looks like for how we live with, uh, with others in the horizontal relationship. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is, this is a pretty simple one, actually. This just means, mercy means that God delayed our payment or our atonement for our sin, that out of his goodness from our birth to the point that we come to him in repentance and accept Jesus, accept what Jesus did for us, that at that point, Jesus pays. And the time between our, our existence and when we come to know Jesus, there is, this, there is this delay of payment that God offers us. He doesn't require that payment. He, 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 he waits patiently for us. The patience of God allows us to come to him. He gives us chance after chance after chance because he loves us so much. And that when we are full of, of that mercy that God gives us, that mercy should ooze out into the, into the community around us, into the people around us that may owe us a lot. There may be things, wrongs, hurts that have been done to you that you need God's mercy in you so you can offer that mercy to others. So you can delay their payment to you by forgiving them the way God forgave you, by being merciful to them the way God is merciful to you. You, you, you can't you can't be like the servant in Jesus' parable that was, that was forgiven all his debts, 10 times what he could pay, forgiven everything. The, the master just said, it's okay, go home. I'm not gonna make you pay. And that servant went out instead of going home, he finds the servant that owed him just a pittance and he screams at him, pay me now. And he beats him. Th that is the opposite of the kingdom of God. That is the opposite of once we are filled with the gospel, we wanna give that mercy to others around us. That's what Jesus is saying. So we will be merciful if we are filled with his mercy. And then he moves on and says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Now, this is, this is just that, that idea that as we take in now, this floodgate opens of God's goodness to us. And it says in the scripture, it says he, he rips out our sin blackened heart when we come to him and he puts in it a pure heart of flesh that our, that our feeling can be directly connected to him, that we're able to hear him in a different way as we have a renewed heart. Our mind still is working on transformation, right? Be, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's a labor that comes as we follow Jesus. But this purity of heart, when we are saved, he gives us a pure heart that we can live and act out of. And it's a humble heart. It's not a proud heart. Uh, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I think that's critical for us to see God the way he intended. Pure Pure people are not proud people. Proud people are not pure people. And there is a way that our pride causes us to only be able to see ourselves, we, 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 we're 
confronted with right there is me and that's all I see is me because me blocks us from a vision of God when, when pride gets in the way. But a pure heart is humble. A pure heart is, is a heart of integrity and those things move out of the way and we're able to see God in just this amazing, extraordinary, beautiful way. I'll tell you what, when I'm proud, um, I actually long to be brought low because there are, there are so many ways that I miss God's activity around me. You know this as you follow the Lord. You can, you can probably go to stories in your own life where as you have been obsessive about yourself, your security, your situation, uh, with, with even, even recently with the virus and the crisis, what's gonna happen to me? Am I gonna be okay? Is my, is my 401k falling apart? Yeah, probably. Is my stock options falling? Yeah, probably. Uh, do I have enough toilet paper in my house? Probably not. But see, it, you're, you, there's a pride in us that becomes obsessed with us and we're only able to see our image. But when we turn to that pure heart God wants to give us, we can see him in a new way. We can actually see where he's moving and where he's acting and the stories of him all around us that are places he's calling us into to experience him more. We can see God when we are pure and postured impurity before him. And then blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Now this is critical. This is not peacekeepers. No, no, it doesn't say peacekeepers. And I know the difference and you know the difference, right? I'll just give you, when I get home at the end of a day and I walk into a situation and I want peace and I want calm and I want shalom in my house and my kids are at each other's throat and they, they're demonstrating chaos and hatred and, and anger and all the things that, that I just don't want to be a part of the environment at all. It is really easy for me to be like, that's it. Get to your corner. You get to your corner. I'm done. I don't want to hear anymore. And they usually crestfallen and crushed. They usually go to their corner. You know what I've done? I've kept a peace, but that's not peacemaking. In fact, peacemakers go right into the places where there is pandemonium where there is fear, where there's all these uh, things that are not of the kingdom of God and they bring with them the presence of God and a peace and a calm and an assurance follows them as they interact with people. So the difference between the kind of parenting I just demonstrated and a peacemaking kind of parent, a peace creating kind of parent is when I come into that situation and I'm aware of the undercurrent, the underlying issues. And I start asking my kids, start questioning them. I'm gentle with them. I'm patient with them. I'm actually full of joy, though I may not feel happy. I've got God's joy and I bring those fruits of the spirit into that. And, and a peacemaking occurs instead of a peacekeeping. And, um, I, I would just, I want to dwell on this for just a second because here is where I think in the, uh, in the spaces around us that we feel such an extraordinary 
uh, compulsion, maybe, maybe to hole up in our homes, to back away from other people. Worse than that, to start somehow blaming other people, lashing out at other people, um, creating, creating for ourselves in our own silo a sense of I'm right and everybody else is wrong, politicizing the coronavirus, calling COVID-19 some sort of conspiracy. I mean, people, people, COVID-19 is not a conspiracy. This situation calls us into acting like Jesus would act. It calls us into a chance to focus on helping others who are afraid, um, really to bring some sense, maybe even of history, truth, data. I don't know the conversations that you're in, but what's real, uh, real information, not the inflamed information that's all around us. I wanna challenge you to look like Jesus in the peacemaking environment, the desperate need for peacemaking in the environments around us, to use the, the mind God has given you, to use the relationship with, with himself that Jesus offers, that purity, that um, righteousness to change environments around. That is what the church is called to be and do right now. And then of course, we move into the 10th and last one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, isn't it interesting that to conclude these blessed are, Jesus, uh, Jesus literally acknowledges and recognizes. And if you continue, if you read verse 11, he says, blessed again are those who, who are reviled, when, when you're reviled by others, which is, which is to say slandered or people attack you and people say things about you that are untrue and people blame you for things you didn't do. Uh, Jesus recognizes and himself was persecuted the point of death on a cross his life shows us then how to live these things out and um, I, I think it's important for the church for us for you and me today to realize that in these kinds of environments people are going to lash out uh, when we're afraid we're driven to do things that we would not do if we were not afraid uh, we're driven towards um an uglier version of ourself. We're driven towards activity and behavior that hurts other people. Instead of staying in the peace of Christ, this is where even when people aren't just asking for help, but maybe when people are cruel to us, our call, the call of our savior on our, on our life is to say, we're gonna love even our enemies. Now, I had an interesting situation with my son this, uh, this last week. In, um, in student ministries, Ben spoke about loving, loving your enemy last weekend. And as we were driving home, I said to Garrett, I said, well, you know, how was, how was the time together? How was the experience? How was the message? And Garrett said, well, Ben talked about uh, loving your enemies. And he said, I, I'm, I'm going to do that someday when I have an enemy. <laughs> and I said, oh, you, you don't think you have any enemies now? He's like, no, I don't, I'm, everybody's my friend. I said, well, okay, what, what, about, what about people who annoy you? 
And I'll just let that sit for a second. What about people who annoy you? What about people who frustrate you? Maybe not your enemy. Maybe, maybe you wouldn't put them in that category, that term of enemy. But right now, there are a lot of people that are going to annoy and frustrate you until you just feel like you can't stand it anymore. Even in those situations, blessed are we who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for Jesus sake, for, for ours is the kingdom of heaven. In the upside down kingdom, this is where we're able to grab a slice of the heavenly kingdom and bring it to earth and make it real around us. That is what impact is going to be about in the next week, in the next two weeks, in the next three weeks, if it takes months and months as a community and as a society to combat this virus, we are going to be the church that is, that is literally, I hope, labeled by others, peacemakers, sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. People recognize it. They're able to see, the world is able to see Jesus in you and me when we truly put our heart in a posture, in a disposition like Jesus. When we're generous, when there's no reason for us to be generous, when there's every reason not to be generous, when we sacrifice for others because Jesus sacrificed himself for us, it changes the very genetic structure of the world and it begins to infuse everything around us with the presence of our holy God, our good, good God, with the incredible character that he has, with the, with the goodness that he wants to bring. So, challenge you, church. Challenge you. Read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. See what just incredible beauty Jesus puts together chapters 5, 6, 7 of Matthew. But don't do it. Don't do it without first looking at the, at the posture, the call that Jesus puts before us, the disposition of the heart that we must have receiving him as our goodness. I'm going to pray now and, um, and then we will uh, we'll be in touch over Facebook Live and other, other ways over the course of the next few days. Okay, let's pray together. God, thank you for today. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the fact that in all of these situations surrounding us, you went first. That we can count on even now, more now than ever, that you have shown us the way, that you have gone forward, that you have accomplished for us everything that we need for life and godliness. And that we can trust you. We really can. God, we cry out, we believe you. We also cry out, help our unbelief. God, truly change us. Work a new miracle in us from the inside out so that the church is the church that you delight in, the bride that you delight in. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.